quick recap. In chapter 1, Paul writes about our spiritual blessings because of our union with Christ. We are chosen by God and adopted into his family. We have been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. We have obtained an eternal inheritance in Christ. In other words, we are recipients of God's wonderfully amazing grace and that for our triune God's eternal praise and glory. Paul continues in chapter 2 by first telling us our dire condition before regeneration. And, and i got to tell you, when I read this, I, I can see me in these words. He writes, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 that was where I was at before Christ that was my life and I would submit that was your life before Christ and that's a pretty bleak picture is it not but Paul through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit doesn't leave us in the lurch because he continues with, in my opinion, now if you want to argue this, you can. But in my opinion, Paul writes the most beautiful words in all of Scripture. I don't think there's a more beautiful passage in all of Scripture when Paul writes, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. I don't think there's more beautiful words in all of Scripture than that. Unless maybe you weren't saved like I was saved. You, you know, some of you have spent your whole life in church. Some of you probably can't even remember a time when you didn't know of Christ or believe in Him. But see, for me, there was a clear demarcation. There was a line that was crossed. And I wasn't dragged screaming and kicking against my will either. But God changed me. Changed my heart. Made me desire the altogether loveliness of Christ. Paul next emphatically lets us know that <clears throat> this great and glorious salvation is not our own doing. As has been rightly said, we are saved by God, we are saved for God, and we are saved from God. He says, by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. So that what? No one can boast. Right? God does the saving. God gets the glory. But Paul continues, this salvation is not just for the Jews. But it is now open to Gentiles. The beauty of the gospel going forth. Jesus says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to what? Every creature. 
And so the kingdom goes forth and spreads and spreads and spreads. Now I'm not a post-millennialist, but, but I am optimistic that nothing can stop the spread of Christ's kingdom. Even as bleak as it looks out there, even as, as, as depraved as we see our society falling, Christ's kingdom will still advance. And He will be finally and eternally victorious. And we Gentiles are included in that kingdom. Paul concludes chapter 3 with a prayer that God will enlighten and strengthen His church. That they would know and experience the mysteries of the gospel. The mysteries of Christ. And Paul starts chapter 4 with the exhortation for Christians to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. You know, it's, there was a story told about Alexander the Great. He had this, I guess, kind of thing for young men. He, he uh, was friendly towards them. I'm not going to argue that or, or against that. I mean, but this young man was brought into his presence because he was caught trying to desert the army. Well, since he was a young man, Alexander was going to be lenient with him. And so he says, young man, what's your name? And the, and the young man kind of, Alexander, excuse me, what did you say your name was? Alexander, sir. And of course, the story is told that the countenance of Alexander the Great, his face changed and he looked at that young man and said, Your name is Alexander? He said, Young man, you better change your conduct or change your name. And that's a call to Christians here to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Your conduct better match your name. Christian, we are to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. In other words, we are to walk in Christ's footsteps. We are to follow after Christ. We are to follow His example. We are to be Christ-like. And that's important because Paul is not just calling for us as individual Christians to walk worthy, but collectively to walk in unity of spirit as the church of the living Christ. That's how we walk worthy together. Starting in chapter 4, verse 4, Paul is calling us to a unified walk. And he's laying a foundation with these great pillars. There is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. You hear the, the word that was repeated the most in that sentence? Of course, that's one sentence. One. That is what? Unity, correct? 
When, when we're speaking of one, we mean one. When a, when, a, when a man leaves his parents and cleaves to his wife, what happens? They become what? One flesh. That's, there's, a, there's a union that takes place. A covenant commitment. James Montgomery Boyce writes, Bible numbers do not interest many people today. But this used to be an interesting part of biblical studies, and our contemporary neglect of it is a loss. The significance of biblical numbers was no doubt greatly exaggerated then. And let me insert a clause. They, they can be ridiculous in, in, in what they do to some of the numbers in the Bible. Okay, But that's not the point he's making. He says, but, but there is still some obvious truth in these emphases. One case in point is in Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 6, which deals with the unity of the church. It is one sentence to begin with, a fact which may be important in itself. But its chief characteristic is a sevenfold repetition of the word one. And there is a fourfold repetition of the word all. Seven is the number of spiritual unity and perfection. And if four does actually refer to creation, then there is a suggestion that the created order finds its perfection by being joined to God within the church. End quote. Now, we can take that with a grain of salt, or we can use it as a springboard to think. But I do know what Paul is saying here. He is saying that there is only one body of Christ. There is only one bride of Christ. Christ is not a polygamist. Christ doesn't have an Old Testament bride and a New Testament bride. Christ doesn't have a Protestant bride and, and, and a Catholic bride. Christ, doesn't, he, Christ does not have a Baptist or Methodist bride over here and a Presbyterian bride over there. He doesn't have a black bride and a white bride and an Asian bride. Christ has one bride. One body. I don't believe when Paul says one body here, I don't believe that he's speaking of the outward visible church here necessarily, but of the spiritual body of Christ. This body includes all the Old and New Testament saints. It includes what we call the church militant and the church at rest. It includes the outward manifestations of the church in this world, which are the many local congregations. One body, one church. Now, having said that, <clears throat> to be part of that church, you must be part of a local congregation. The church is just not some spiritual entity that you can just say, well, I'm a saved, I'm a Christian, I'm part of God's church. To do that is to, to negate Scripture. To do that is to go against what the Scripture teaches. To be part of the church, you must be joined to a local congregation. You must be in covenant fellowship with a local congregation of believers. You've heard people say, I'm a Christian, I don't need the church. I saw on Facebook some time ago, it was a picture of this 
herd of zebras standing in the background. And there's this little zebra running for its life with a lion chasing it. And the caption was, I'm a Christian and I don't need the church. If that were a picture, (laughs) you would have this little zebra running for its life with a lion right on its tail. And the rest of the zebra standing back watching. Right? You can't be on your own and be a Christian. There is specific language used in the Bible. One body. What is a body made up of? Parts. Parts. So saying that the church is a body necessarily assumes that there are parts. Pastor Thomas used the illustration last Lord's Day. If you're walking down the street and you've seen a hand laying there, what good is that hand doing anybody? It can't do anything if it's not attached to the body. It cannot do the body any good. <clears throat> Paul continues, one spirit. Now, we've got to think, especially as Reformed Baptists, we need to think about this passage carefully. One spirit. You know, it's the same Holy Spirit that indwells you and me, that indwells all believers. Think about that. I fear far too often, especially within the bounds of Reformed circles, we tend to forget this. There may be many Christians that do not see eye to eye with us on some of these major Bible doctrines. Eschatology, soteriology, anthropology, and others. And we might not agree with them. They might not agree with us. What did did, uh, Dr. Godfrey say in the study this morning? (laughs) Lesser Christians and... There's just no such thing in God's eyes as a lesser Christian. Because if you're in Christ, <laughs> you are precious to Him. And God doesn't play favorites. How do we know this? It's the same Spirit that indwells us all. The same Spirit indwells all believers. If you truly have a saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter what your eschatological belief is. It doesn't matter how you view the process of salvation. If your faith is in Christ, you are a Christian. Now, we may say you're maybe a less enlightened Christian, and you may say that about us. We could even say those who bind their consciences unnecessarily are the weaker brothers and sisters, but they're still brothers and sisters. You know, I think we could do a lot more good in this world if we could put our differences aside and walk together with our brothers and sisters in Christ sharing the gospel. Now, there are certain gospel distinctives that that we must keep separate, we, we learned about that in, in, in our reading this morning. We are distinctly Baptists. And so we, we differ from our Presbyterian brothers and sisters in that. 
But we believe in one Lord, the same Lord, do we not? One Spirit. One Spirit. You know, this is something to think about. Charles Hodges writes, As there is one body, so there is one Spirit, who is the life of that body and dwells in all its members. And then he goes on to make this statement. Now listen carefully. I'm not saying this is a biblical statement. I'm not saying this is necessarily true. But it will provoke you to think. And I I kind of agree with the statement. All sins against unity are sins against the Holy Spirit. Think of that. If it's the same Holy Spirit that indwells all believers, and you are divisive, who are you sinning against? Sinning against God. You're sinning against the head of the church, Christ. You're sinning against the lifeblood of the church, the Holy Spirit. We ought to be careful in how we treat our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, whether we agree with them or not. Paul continues, he says, one hope. No matter what outwardly divides us, and I'm speaking of doctrine, no matter what outwardly divides the church militant, we all share in the one hope that we will stand one day glorified in the eternal presence of our King, Christ Jesus. That's the hope that we have. That's the hope that we preach at funerals, is it not? The hope that that the one who departed had a saving faith in Christ. And, and had having had a saving faith in Christ, we will one day see them again. If we too have that saving faith. That's our hope. That's the one hope. That's the hope that all Christians have. Being in heaven with Christ for all eternity. And this doesn't just include the intermediate state, you know, when Paul says to be absent from the body is to be with the Lord. That is included. But this more, I think, focuses more, our hope focuses more past the intermediate state to the final culmination when Christ returns for His bride, when the resurrection happens and we are given our resurrected bodies and the, and the wicked are judged and punished. And then we are living with Christ in a new heaven and a new earth when He makes all things new, when He wipes away every tear from our eyes. The culmination of world history and the beginning of new. One hope. Paul continues, One Lord. You see where he's going with this. Unity. Unity. Unity of mind. It should be unity of purpose. We have one Lord, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our one Lord. And and by the way, He is Lord whether you make Him such or not. He's not waiting for you to make Him Lord. He is the Lord of all creation. And consequently, because of that, every knee will bow. Most in abject horror as they enter into their eternal punishment. But there are still countless 
who even now bow the knee in humble repentance and faith. One Lord. William Hendrickson writes, He is our Lord in the sense that He bought us. We are His. He owns us. He loves us, cares for us, protects us. We recognize His sovereignty, own Him as our deliverer and ruler, trust, obey, love, and worship Him. Whether Jew or Gentile, bond or free, male or female, already in heaven or still on earth, we all confess this one Lord is ours. End quote. One Lord, one Savior of mankind. The Lord Jesus Christ. We have one faith. There aren't different saving faiths. You know, even in the Old Testament, the Old Testament saints were saved by their faith in God and the promise of a coming Messiah. It's the same faith that we have. We just now have a name to put on it. Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, the Messiah. We believe that Jesus, being fully God and fully man, through the miracle of the Incarnation, became flesh by being born of a virgin. He lived a completely sinless life, thus fulfilling the law of God for us. He then died a vicarious death on a Roman cross for the sins of His elect. He was buried, but three days later was raised in power and glory. He appeared to over 500 witnesses during a period of approximately 40 days. And then he ascended up to heaven and was highly exalted by God the Father, where he now sits at the Father's right hand, making intercession for his people. And the Lord Jesus, this one Lord, will one day return, hopefully soon. He will return for his bride. One Lord. No matter what areas of doctrine we may differ on, if we believe these essential truths about Jesus, if we truly experientially believe in Jesus, the Jesus of Scripture, then we are united in one saving faith. By grace you have been saved through faith in the living Christ. One faith. Paul continues, one baptism. Now, I don't believe here that he's speaking of the spiritual baptism of the Holy Spirit, but he's speaking of water baptism. Now, we differ with some of our brothers and sisters, the Pado Baptists. We differ with them. But there's one baptism. What, what essentially is baptism? It is, to put it simply, baptism is an outward display of an inward reality. Okay, it's, it, In baptism we identify with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. And we are publicly proclaiming to all who witness our baptism, Yes, I belong to Christ. I am His. I identify with Christ. One baptism. And no, it's not the sign of the new covenant. 
<clears throat> it is, however, a sign. It is a sign that we belong to Christ. Paul says there's one baptism. This is not the passage that we use to argue for credo baptism. <laughs> but Paul is saying that if you're a believer and you have been baptized, you have been baptized with one baptism. It's the one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one body, one baptism, and one God and Father of all. Now, when he says of all there, he's not saying God is Father of all humanity. There is a real sense in, in which God is creator, <laughs> is kind of the Father of all creation. But that's not what's being said here. Because Paul is speaking specifically to the church. To those who have been redeemed. To those who are united by faith with Christ. He is saying there is one God. Now think about this. The grandest thoughts that you can have of God. God is completely other, right? He's holy, holy, holy. He's, he's infinitely above and beyond what we can ever imagine. He, he's, he consists in Himself. He, he exists by Himself, for Himself, in Himself. He's, his existence is not, not based on anything outside of Him. He's not created. He's eternal. And this God, this one God, we have the privilege of calling Father. So He's not just a God that's out there, but He's a God that's here, that we can relate to, that we can fellowship with, that we can have a relationship, a family relationship with, because He is in Christ, He is our adopted Father. We have been adopted into His family. We call this one God Father. Let that sink in. In what other false religions do they have a relationship with their gods like that? Almost every false religion, they're, they're, they're afraid of their gods. They're trying to appease their gods. They're trying to buy their gods' favor. And we simply go to the one true living God and say, Our Father, who art in heaven. That's our God. That's the God that Paul's speaking of. The one God. There is only one God, and He is our Father. What a glorious foundation Paul builds here for Christian unity. When we look at all these, these pillars in this foundation, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. What a glorious foundation for Christian unity. How can we not be unified? How can we allow ourselves divisiveness based on these truths of Scripture. 
Speaking of this glorious reality, Sinclair Ferguson poses the question. Now listen to the question and think about it. Based on, but all these ones that we've looked at, could there possibly be more basic, closer, all-embracing all or important unity than that? Where could you find a better motivation for unity than looking at our oneness in Christ? As I said before, we as Reformed Baptists, we ought to take this serious and, and, and think sometimes twice or, or three times or more about how we think of our other brothers and sisters in Christ. Just because they don't toe the line with us doesn't mean they're not in Christ. And when the Bible says Jesus loved the church and gave himself for her, for the whole church and that love is the same for the whole church up to now in chapter 4 Paul has been speaking of the unity of one but you're going to notice a shift in verse 7 as he's going to be begin to speak of a unity with diversity a unity with diversity But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. You see that? Grace was given to each one of us. Now he's speaking of individual members. You, you can't be a member of the one apart from the saving grace of God, apart from the grace of Christ. And Christ, if you are in Christ, you have been given that wonderful grace. But Paul's going to also talk about other gifts. Not just this gift of grace, but gracious gifts to the church. We're not going to get to that today. We're going to pick that up, Lord willing, next week. In order for this unity to work, to be truly God-honoring, we all must pull together within the context of the local church. We have been given different gifts, different functions within the body. And consequently, if you're not performing the function that you can do, that you've been graced with, you hurt the body. I really feel... I was trying to explain to some of my pastor friends in the fraternal and, and of course Pastor Thomas and Pastor Tyler. I feel so out of it. Having missed the last three Lord's Days, it just wasn't natural. It was wrong. It was, it was out of order. And I, was, I, I told him I can't wait to get back into the house of God with God's people. Providentially, the last three Lord's Days, I was traveling on the Lord's Day. And, and it didn't feel right. And I'm so happy to be back with this one body. Amen. 
we have been given gifts by Christ for the good of His church. And we have been given these gifts, one, so we can work together for the cause of Christ, but two, so that the kingdom can advance, and most importantly, that Christ will be made much of throughout the world. Shouldn't that be our desire? To see the whole world bowing the knee to Christ, proclaiming Him as Lord, worshiping Him as God. That should be our desire. Now we know, if we are realists, that's never going to happen. But we proclaim the gospel because we know our God is mighty to save. And not one of His people will be left out. Not a one of His elect will be in hell. What did God tell Paul when he was at Corinth? Don't be ashamed or afraid to preach the gospel here because I have a people. And God has a people from every tribe and tongue and kindred and nation. And we are to use the gifts that we are given towards that end. Seeing people converted to saving faith in Christ. Bowing the knee. Worshiping Him. As Lord and God. Paul writes, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. See where he's going with that. What are we to do? We are to perform our function within the body so that Christ is made much of. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. And then Paul, he goes into this, which we'll try to get through this quickly. But Paul inserts now, he's, he's speaking of gifts. He's talking about God's gift to the church. God's gift to each one of us. And then he's going to speak in verse 11 about specific gifts that God gives to the church. And then in following verses, he's going to tell us why those gifts are given. But then he inserts here, it's almost like, why does he insert these, these verses here in the middle of what he's saying about the gifts? And I hope that we'll be able to see that very clearly. He's telling us, what made those gifts possible and where they come from. He writes, Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Paul is directly referencing Psalm 68, verse 18, which reads, You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train, and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. Ferguson reminds us that in ancient days, it was often the practice of a conquering king or general to parade his captives through the streets of his capital city. 
and to show the vast spoils of war that he had collected. And Paul is taking that image and applying it to, well, the psalm is applying it to God. God is the conquering warrior. That psalm was probably written uh, uh, when the ark was successfully brought back to Jerusalem. Showing that God was with his people. He was victorious. Remember the ark was a symbol. They thought it was a symbol of victory. And the presence of God. So Psalm 68 pictures God as a mighty conquering warrior. And Paul does what with that psalm? He applies it to Christ. He applies it to Christ. Ferguson writes, Pentecost then was the triumph day of Christ. His victory was publicly celebrated by an an outpouring of gifts on the citizens in his kingdom and the soldiers in his army. He conquered and now reigns. And one of the signs of his victory is the widespread distribution of the gifts of his grace. End quote. So I think that's the point that Paul's making in this little insert before he's speaking of the gifts. He wants to know how we got the gifts, what made them possible, and where they come from. And so, this is also... I want to say mention of the psalm, Psalm 68. I'm sure they didn't, well, I can't say I'm positive, but I don't think they saw it as a messianic psalm. But Paul applies it as such. This is a perfect example of what St. Augustine said. The new is in the old concealed. The old is in the new revealed. We wouldn't know that was a messianic psalm except for Paul says, that's Christ. In that psalm. And so, Paul speaks of Christ's descent in his ascent. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Paul is speaking here of Christ's humiliation. He's speaking of, you know, when we, when we think of Christ's humiliation, we normally think of his trial before the Sanhedrin and his execution by the Romans. But I would argue it starts as his incarnation. Amen. Because he is God. And yet, as God took on flesh, as the Apostle John writes, and he became flesh and dwelt among us. And the writer of Hebrews says that he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. He was a man of sorrows, we're reading the Psalms. And in Isaiah, he was crushed. He suffered. His entire life was part of his humiliation. And so I believe when it says he descended to the lower parts of the earth, that's what it's talking about. His entire humiliation. And yes, his death on the cross. He, he died on the cross for our sins. He, he suffered hell on the cross for his people. Now, I don't believe that after he died, he went to hell. That's a, I, think a, I think that's a heretical teaching, if I could say that. No, he suffered hell on the cross. 
And when he said it was finished, it is finished. That was it. There was no more payment to be made. And that's what hell is. Hell is a payment for sin. An eternal punishment. Christ endured that for his people. And he was buried. But he didn't stay dead. Death could not keep him. He rose from the grave three days later in power and glory. And he appeared to over 500 people in the next approximately 40 days. And then he ascended back up to heaven. So he who descended, ascended. But that's not where it stops. He didn't just ascend into heaven. Okay, Dad, I'm home. No, he was exalted. He was highly exalted. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight, Acts 1.9. And I believe Psalm 24 speaks of this ascension and coronation. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. You see, that goes back to the picture of Psalm 68, does it not? Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. And then we have Christ's exaltation in which Paul wrote about in Philippians 2. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him, listen to this, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so, Paul has included all that in his little insert here. Christ's humiliation, His ascension, and His exaltation. But all that has a purpose. All of that has a purpose. Not just for the saving of God's people, which, which was God's purpose, but specifically what Jesus spoke of in John chapter 14 and John chapter 15. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about me. So that, what does Paul say? So that Christ can do what? Fill all. What was the purpose of his ascension and exaltation? But so that he and the Father could send the Holy Spirit. That's where the gifts come from. That's the filling all that Paul is speaking of in this insert. And so it directly ties to what he's going to tell us next about the gifts now that Christ gives to his church and why he gives these gifts to his church. And Lord willing, we'll get to that next week. In our passage today, we have heard the Apostle Paul, through the leading and guidance of the Holy Spirit, exhort us to Christian unity. He has built a strong foundation on the Lord Jesus Christ. And we will continue to look next week next week our Lord willing at the gifts now that Christ specifically gives 
to the church and why? Dear ones, just because you are present here today, seated on these seats, next to all these dear people, that doesn't make you a Christian. You may be a physical member of this local congregation, but still be outside Christ's one body. Only a true and living faith in Jesus Christ can save you. Run to Him today. Repent of your sins and place your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus. Proclaim to Him, My Lord and my God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Dear saints, let us constantly strive for unity in the body of Christ. Let us be slow to judge our weaker brothers and sisters or those whom we think or, or, or who appear to be our weaker brothers and sisters, at least in our estimation. And let us stay humble enough to realize that we, we just might be the weaker brothers and sisters. But let's keep in mind, if someone rightly names the name of Christ in saving faith, they are precious in His sight. And so they should be precious in your sight. Because they are the church, the one body. Even though we are diverse and all of us have different gifts, we are all saved by the truly amazing grace of our triune God. Let's pray. Holy Father, speak to our hearts today. Grant us a double portion of humility as we look at the beautiful bride of Christ help us not become haughty and high-minded but know that she is lovely in his sight and precious to the point of him giving himself for her let us esteem her much as we esteem her Lord and her head our Savior for it's in his Holy and precious name I pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing together song, uh, hymn 89. Hymn 89. Amazing grace.